Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and thanks for joining me for the first ever full-fledged episode of Chef-Demony. It's chefs, it's lawyers, but really it's just about food. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef-Demony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Here we are at the first full episode of Chef Demoni. I'm really happy you're joining me. In today's show, I interview two people who know the food scene in Vancouver, BC, the hometown of Chef Demoni, really well. The first is Chef Andrea Carlson of Vancouver's Burdock & Co. restaurant. And when I think of the word chef, it is always Chef Carlson who comes to mind first for me. Chef gave me my start in the culinary world in Vancouver, and I've had the privilege of cooking with her and learning from her for almost 10 years. As I talked about in the last episode, Chef Carlson welcomed me into her kitchen as a volunteer while I was working full-time in law in downtown Vancouver. And what I found so fun about our interview on today's show is that I learned things I didn't know about Chef, even after working with her regularly for almost a decade. There's a great story about a turnip, for example. And more than good stories, I learned the depths of Chef Carlson's commitment to food security, how that issue really drives her decisions on sourcing food and wine, and how it informs really everything she does in her restaurants. I came away from our interview with yet more appreciation for what Andrea Carlson does, and I think you're going to enjoy getting to know this very talented Vancouver chef. Next up is my friend Mark Tweedy. Mark is a longtime student of the Vancouver food scene, and he's had the opportunity to take in a lot of lunches over a legal career that started, let's just say, a few years ago. In recent years, Mark has transitioned from being a litigator, a trial lawyer, to being a mediator, the one who resolves disputes instead of arguing them. Mark and I met up in a coffee shop in Gastown, and we had a great talk reminiscing about restaurants and chefs from years ago. Mark has some wonderful memories of dining out in the pre-internet era, and he talks about the food scene in Vancouver in the 80s and the ways in which it was different from how things are today. And talk about learning something new. During our interview, I discovered that Mark and I were both waiters at the Keg restaurant well before going to law school. For listeners outside Canada, the Keg is an iconic Canadian steakhouse, and Mark and I each put in time at different Keg locations as servers. That's given us both an appreciation for the importance of treating your servers well. All right, that's enough introduction. On to the interviews. Let's head over to Burdock & Co. You're going to hear the sounds of dinner prep in the background. And here's my interview with Chef Andrea Carlson. So here we are at Burdock & Co. with Chef Andrea Carlson. And when I say Chef Andrea Carlson, I mean the person who, for me, is Chef with a capital C, because she is the first chef I've worked for and has given me so many opportunities in the field. So, Chef, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Excited. Can you start us out just by talking about when food and cooking became important to you? Let's go back to early, early days. Okay, sure. When it really became important to me was when I was, this might sound strange that it was so late in the game, but when I was working at the Sioux Harbor House, there was a moment with a turnip, a freshly harvested turnip from one of the many uh, farms around the Sioux Harbor House in East Sioux. And it was just so vibrant and flavorful and texturally dynamic in a way that I had never experienced from a turnip, which is generally one of the more lowly root vegetables in uh, our collection as chefs. That was a, probably about 10 years into my career at that point, but that was the defining moment when I knew that, that I knew the importance of this incredibly getting your food from someone that you knew 
immediately as it was harvested that that was the key and that was the that was sort of the reason for everything that we were doing that was the inspiration and that was that was when it mattered the turnip was really a turning point and has that really driven everything that you've done since or been the inspiration for everything you've done since it really has i mean uh, ever since then you know with the organic local farmers in East Souk. Then coming back to Vancouver, being a chef at Rain City Grill Restaurant, then the chef at Bishop's Restaurant, and now finally opening my own restaurant, Burdock & Co., and as well as Harvest Community Foods. That is the reason. And I didn't realize at the time that it was about a larger issue, which is food security, which I feel very strongly about. You know, it's everything from the very simple flavor aspect from the quality of the product to having the access to the unique products that someone can be growing for you just outside your back door, so to speak, to you know moving higher up the level with maintaining, growing, nurturing, building relationships with your farmers, which ultimately is supporting your local food system. And that is what food security is to me. Let's go back a little bit and talk to the listeners a bit about the period prior to the turnip moment. And can you take us through your early days in cooking, where you started out? I know you went to Debrul Culinary School, but maybe walk the listeners through that progression and what the industry was like, what cooking was like, and your relationship with ingredients and farmers prior to the turnip. My first sort of memory of getting interested in food was through a cookbook that I picked up when I was 13 years old. It was the uh, Craig Claiborne New York Times, uh, Best of New York Times cookbook. And there I discovered things like Julia Child's chocolate mousse recipe, which was laden with Grand Marnier, which I quite liked as a 13-year-old. Very easy to make. (laughs) Chicken Parmesan, some very classic dishes. And I just thought that was a lot of fun. So when we would have people over to our house, I would make some of these random dishes from that cookbook, and I really enjoyed it. While in college, I also had some office work type jobs, which were incredibly dull. Once you're doing that and the dullness also of sitting at a sitting at a desk, whether it's in a job or at school, it was something that I just didn't want to do anymore. I explored culinary school. So I leaned towards the uh, Jabrul, went there, had an excellent experience, as brief as it was, and it basically that school was the opportunity for you to get a job. You know, it was it was simply a stepping stone into the industry. And brought you into the industry, first in Vancouver, and tell us where you started out and what the first job was like, what station you were on, and, and what sorts of things you were doing. The first job I had was with Chef Adam Busby at Star Anise Restaurant, which at that point, he had been a chef at Bishop's, and he had opened his own place. So it was really interesting, actually, now, you know, once I'd been a chef at Bishop's, to see some of the same customers that I knew originally when I was 19 years old from Star Anise still at Bishop's as customers because they went to both places because they were very fond of Adam. He was a very talented chef. That was my first job, Garmanger. Really intense. It was, a, you know, it was a very busy place, 40 seats. We did two complete turns of 40 covers, each seating. 80 people a night. For someone who didn't have any industry experience and could barely chop a tomato, it was a real eye-opener. I was there for a year and a half and learned an incredible amount before I moved on to my next job. Is that important for a young cook to work in a high-volume, high-turn environment? I guess what I'm getting at is how important is experience? Once you come out of culinary school, you've got the academic side of it. How critical to success is practice, practice, practice? 
Yeah, I mean, at 40 seats, uh, Star Anise was not what I would consider a high volume restaurant. It was just the intensity of doing those 40 people all at once. But yeah, absolutely. Practice, practice, practice. The repetition is everything. You know, people will say you don't know how to debone a chicken until after you've done an entire case of them. It's just muscle memory with exercise. It's the same thing with cooking. It's a trade. It's just, um, it's a learned skill. So repetition is extremely important and once you understand those basics then you can move on to generating your own ideas coming up with your own sort of shift in what you've learned and what you think might be better different and on from there but it's fair to say you have to have the grounding before it's best to have the grounding and for a chef critical to have the grounding before you move more to the creative side i think so absolutely so from Star Anise, we've talked a little bit about Souk Harbor House, but can you tell the listeners as well about what I find a super fascinating business that you ran with your partner, Kevin, on Savory Island? And it's just so different from what I think of as the Vancouver culinary scene, but it fits entirely with what I understand your relationship to food and ingredients and customers to be. So please tell us a bit about the Savory Island time. Those were great days. <laughs> We were young. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the year before my partner, Kevin, was going to architecture school. And we thought it would be great to design, build a bakery on Savory Island where he had a property. It was a fantastic lifestyle, which is so much part of what we enjoy about this business at times is that, you know, you can't be in this industry unless you love it and you're really willing to sort of dive into it wholeheartedly because it is your morning your night and everything else in between. You know, we would we would start our bread preparation at night, work well into the evening by candlelight because Savory Island did not have electricity, still doesn't. So we would collect water from the spring. We would uh, work by candlelight, do natural naturally leavened breads, be up very, very early in the morning to get the proofing happening and get the oven going so it was fantastic and it was just you know the entire day this whole cycle of you know making the bread baking the bread and then in the you know midday you have a break after you've done your sales and you go down to the beach and you hang out and that was life and that was fantastic so so before we get a little more in detail about burdock and co can you walk the listeners through your return to Vancouver. You know, it was funny. My partner, Kevin, was on the opening restaurant team at Sea Restaurant, which at the time was a very exciting place. They were launching a program called Ocean Wise with the Vancouver Aquarium. And Chef Robert Clark was the foremost leader in sustainability for seafood. So my partner was part of that opening team as a server. Kevin mentioned that he was dating a cook. And one thing led to another. And Robert realized that it was me that he was talking about and was so excited and immediately offered me a job through Kevin. So that was great. I didn't realize somehow that it that Rob was the chef there and, or think that he would remember me, but I enthusiastically uh, took a job at Sea Restaurant. So that's what happened when I came back. Sea Restaurant was really important to raising the profile and importance of sustainability in Vancouver's whole restaurant industry. Chef Robert Clark of Sea inspired really a generation of chefs to make sustainability a fundamental part of their cooking and eventually part of their own restaurants. And Chef Andrea and I talked about how chefs can share their knowledge on sustainability, how they can get that information out of the kitchen. Definitely there's a lot of information in the kitchen, but I think part of what 
cooks and chefs can offer, not just in terms of their knowledge of, on how to cook a meal, is their connection to farmers, their understanding of seasonality and local foods, and their hopefully their respect for those things. Because I think those are some pretty fundamental aspects of what we do is that you know we're, we're here to support our local food system, work within the Obviously, not everyone does, but you know, ideally, work within the parameters of that, and um, you know, take advantage of potato season when it's potato season, rather than striving for imported products, which is very much what was the standard when I got into the industry. You know, the more the more exotic your produce was, or the more you know, the farther it had come, the the more valued it was by guests and by chefs. So at this point in our journey in the city, I think that's one of the biggest things that cooks can convey to people is the importance of eating locally. Even though it seems like it should be something that we're all so well versed in, it is surprising to me how new the concept is to so many people. Sustainability has been a defining part of Chef Andrea's career. As an example, Chef was a very important early figure in the rise of the 100-mile diet, and she worked with the 100-mile diet during her time as executive chef at Vancouver's Rain City Grill. I asked Chef about changes she has seen in customer expectations for fresh and local food from her early days in the industry to today. So now we are definitely seeing people will come in with an expectation of things being organic, being local. A lot of customers go to the farmers markets, they know the growers, so they have that intimate relationship themselves, which is very exciting. And they they understand the importance of it. They look for those items that are available at those moments, particularly like the squash blossom is happening this week. It's so exciting, you know, they're super stoked. They're just jazzed to be in having squash blossoms. So that is a really exciting change to see. But on the other hand, you know, there's still so much greenwash in this industry with restaurants. There are so many customers still who don't have the haven't haven't found out about organic or perhaps they don't care but some some things that still feel disappointing chef's point on greenwashing is really important lots of businesses try to look green and environmentally friendly but really it's more about appearance than reality because doing it right is hard and it's expensive so i asked andrea about a different kind of sustainability the financial kind and about the challenges of running a restaurant that really does bring the best of fresh, local, organic products to its customers. It's just a driving philosophy of life, you know, that we do it because we believe in food security, we do it because it's the right thing to do, and it's by no means the easy thing to do, but it's what we believe in, and you kind of have to get up every day and, you know, your work all day at this business in this industry and I couldn't do it if I didn't believe in it and if I didn't believe that we were doing the right thing. So, you know, one of the things that, for example, gets me really excited is this past week I received a shipment of these Row 7 seeds which are created in partnership with Dan Barber from Blue Hill who's one of the amazing leaders in our industry around food security and local eating and he has partnered with a number of different farmers and growers and researchers to sort of create tastier and unique seeds and 
produce. So it's a really cool project. We got some seeds from him, or well, from row seven this past week. And I'm very excited about that. That kind of, you know, keeps the inspiration going, gets you excited about the new growing season and uh, working with the growers at Glorious Organics who are gonna plant those for us and check them out. Please tell us about the move from Rain City because you took another executive chef job and that was at Bishop's Restaurant in Kitsilano. What drew you to, what drew you to Bishop's? Well, I mean, what an opportunity working with John Bishop. He's a legend. He's, you know, they call him the grandfather of local eating in Vancouver. He has done so much for the profile of eating locally in this city. It's incredible. He's won a Governor General's Award. He's done documentaries based in India, you know, highlighting issues around food security in that community. So he's a real inspiration and he's always been completely dedicated to supporting farmers and supporting local food. And of course, I couldn't miss the chance to ask Andrea for her thoughts on bringing me into the kitchen at Bishop's a decade ago. I gave my side of the story on the last episode, and here was my chance to ask Chef Andrea what she thought. And hey, it turns out my willingness to work for free may have been playing a role here. You took a flyer on an incredibly inexperienced, I can't even say cook, person at the time, me, who wrote to you and expressed an interest in, in joining your team. So, and that, I just realized, is coming up to 10 years oh this August, right? <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, incredible. So thank you for that, because it led to so many wonderful experiences in my life over the last decade, and they would not have happened without you. So thank you. Amazing. And That's awesome. Why did you do it? Kitchens are can be great places for learning. They can be very convivial. And I think it's just about finding the right fit. You know, we always want to welcome, or not, not everybody, obviously, but I always want to welcome anyone into the kitchen who has a positive attitude, a willingness to learn, and you know, has a professionalism to them. And the fact for you that you didn't want to be paid was definitely an added bonus. So it was the perfect thing. So, you know, for someone like you to come in with your enthusiasm once a week, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, we can anticipate what sort of jobs we could get for you to do, things you might not have tried before. And I think it just worked well for both of us. And it was also fantastic to have extra hands for events because restaurants are always doing events. So they can often be some of the more exciting things that we do in a year, going off site, going to cook at farms, all sorts of things. So having someone like you that's I don't think you've ever said no to me for an event, which is incredible. You know, knowing that I can count on you to come with and help us out with these events is just phenomenal. Well, and I can say from my side, I've experienced a lot of those events, particularly in my private practice, law days, as a customer, right? We would take clients to these things, and that was great. You got to experience them from the guest perspective. It's way more fun on the cooking side. So thanks for taking me, and I'm going to ask to go to more. Awesome. Awesome. What are you doing Tuesday? Okay. (laughs) talk. Okay. Take the listeners from, we could talk about each stage for, for a long, long time, but I really want to get to Burdock & Co, which is your stop after, uh, not your stop, your creation after Bishops. So please tell us about that transition and tell us what you want us to know about Burdock & Co. I mean, Burdock & Co was created out of a desire of my partner and I, Kevin, wanting to have a place that was accessible to everybody. Back in the day, through all of the restaurants that I've worked at, they've always been fine dining restaurants. And, you know, 
$45 plates, not very accessible for the average person with a family. And one thing that has always been in the domain of those high-end restaurants was access to these really great products and farmers. So this was, again, before we had the sort of proliferation of farmers markets that we do today, and even as many growers as we do today. There were far fewer a decade ago. We really wanted to be able to bring, you know, glorious greens, salad mix, and these incredible turnips to a venue that was accessible to people that didn't depend on the $45 duck breast as the star of the show and, you know, a place that was more vegetable forward because those are the things that get me excited. So that was the impetus for Burdock & Co. Something that was going to be share plate, something that was going to, you know, be about social eating. We've got our, our long table that's uh, sort of a more convivial aspect of the restaurant. We wanted it to be a neighborhood place and not elitist. And it's succeeded on all of those grounds. Can you talk a little bit, because one thing I think that probably does surprise people, knowing how passionate you are about local and organic and knowing the producers in your backyard as much as you can on the food side, is that the wine list is not uh, all BC focused by any means, but it does definitely follow a theme. So tell us your wine philosophy and how that works with the food and with the restaurant overall. Yeah, absolutely. The wine focus is exactly the same as the focus on the food, which is that it's about knowing where it comes from and supporting the highest standards of agriculture that we can. So for us, that means at least organic, biodynamic, small scale. And the producers that we use around natural wine are small scale. Uh, It's about leaving the land better then you find it. And these are things that are really important to us. Natural wine can best be described as nothing added, nothing taken away. And it is completely different from the bulk, you know, like 99.9% of the wine created in our world internationally, which has colors added to it, sugars, yeasts, all sorts of chemicals for characters, flavor profiles, get the alcohol level up. Some customers seem to value a higher alcohol level. Ours is simply, you know, we're supporting natural wine, which is an agricultural product. It's grown by people on their own land. It's grape juice, you know, naturally fermented, just the the healthy yeast on on the skin of the grape, you know, into an amphora perhaps and just left to ferment and naturally you know the grapes naturally to press down and juice themselves so just natural process natural growth and when you finally take those grapes into the point in their life where you're making the wine you're not messing around with it you're not adding all of those inoculants and sugars and other chemicals to it which is completely counter to raising a great agricultural product. It's all a piece. And I want to jump ahead one topic here because this, again, seems seems to my thinking to fit in with your food philosophy, your wine philosophy. 
and that's collaborations that you enter into. It seems to be a growing trend we're seeing in the industry. And I know you've collaborated with local chefs. I remember your fish fight with Rob from Campagnolo. But you did one recently, and again, further afield, you brought in a chef from Japan. So how did you find him, and why did this chef click with Andrea and with Burdock? You know, it was really timely. We had just been to Japan for the first time last spring, and we hit cherry blossom season perfectly. It was incredible. On the first night in Tokyo, Kevin, our partner in Harvest, Gabe, and I all went to a restaurant that was in the neighborhood we happened to be staying in. We didn't know anything about it. It was simply a late night, spontaneous walk-in situation. And they were reluctant to seat us because they didn't have any English menus. Their English was, you know, not massive in terms of uh, what what they could speak to us and we of course spoke no Japanese so you know because Japanese culturally don't aren't wanting anyone to have a bad experience they were very reluctant to let us come in we persisted they sat us at the bar let us know that it would be sort of a you know chef's menu sitting at the bar and we're like fantastic so we ended up having the most amazing experience turns out the sommelier maitre d Kenji was a huge fan of natural wine, so we were, you know, trying to let them know that we had a restaurant in Vancouver, and we just had a fantastic experience. So much so that after we had dined around all of the towns in Japan over the course of the next couple of weeks, we were so excited to be traveling through Tokyo once again so that we could go to their restaurant one last time. And it didn't disappoint. It was just, you know, some of the some of the tastiest dishes that we had while we were in the country. And now they've been here to share in Burdock. Exactly. I mean, we were invited to participate in the uh, Tourism Vancouver's World Chef Exchange Dinner. As soon as that offer was made to me, I knew immediately of all of the people in the world, you know, that it would be contacting Chef Umihiro and Kenji and inviting them to come because their food really spoke to me and I think in its way echoed some of the things that we do here in terms of flavor profiles, aesthetics, you know, sourcing and attitude. And I think so much in the spirit of that dinner, which is hopefully to invite someone that no one's heard of, because what an incredible opportunity that is, rather than inviting someone who is, you know, famous and has cookbooks and obviously everybody wants to go to those dinners too but you know for the people of Vancouver to experience what you know Chef Umihiro is doing how would you ever find their place right so I just think it was such a great experience such a fantastic opportunity and I'm so thankful that the two of them agreed to come here and do that. We're going to go to a few questions for tips that you may have for the listeners but before we get there I, I just ask you to comment on women in the industry because both here at Burdock & Co we've got a woman who's the owner and executive chef, co-owner and executive chef, we've got a woman who's the general manager and at Harvest Community Foods we've got Gabe. So that's unusual in the industry. How unusual is that and how important is that? It's extremely unusual to be honest. It's a funny story. We can often, not often, but there have been occasions where you'll have a customer who wants to, you know, speak to the manager and they expect that to be a man. When they're met with a female, they're like, I want to speak to the owner. And then when they're met with a female again, it just really throws them for a loop. So yeah, women in the industry. I mean, having Julie, who's our general manager, Gabe, who's managing Harvest, it doesn't have to be about male or female. It's about whoever you can work well with and whoever 
supports the vision, who's bringing positive energy and spirit into the business, and who is interested in moving things forward on all levels, from the business to the personal, and building the team in a positive way. Okay, Chef, now to a few tips for the listeners. Can you tell us one piece of equipment, cooking equipment, that you think more people should be using it at home, more home cooks should use? The Vita Prep is my top choice for uh-huh. best thing in the world. You know, whether you're making your morning smoothie or you're finish, you're you know, gonna puree a sauce or a soup, there's nothing worse than those dodgy, horribly pureed soups and sauces. Just get a Vita Prep, it's gonna change your life 100%. Love it. And I remember more than seven years ago now, probably closer to 10, I bought one on your uh, recommendation. And I still use it, if not every day, every second day. Exactly. How about a technique? What can home cooks be doing that they're not doing right now or not doing enough? You know, I'm torn because today I made a cassoulet for dinner, which is so satisfying. Just the braise, you know, in winter, it's so easy, so satisfying, fills your house with amazing aromas gives back so much when you go to eat it. It's just incredible. So I'm torn between saying braise or saying raw food because I'm really feeling the plant-based diets right now as well. The potential for people to explore vegetables in ways that they may not have thought of in terms of when they're raw, the the textural aspect, say a green fennel seed, the, the flavors coming out of something like that. There's so many opportunities from plants that uh, I think people would benefit from exploring. Your health benefits, flavor, the healthy aspects it brings to the, the planet, all of those things. So, you know, between the braves and the raw food. It's somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Definitely not in the middle. <laughs> no, all of the extremes. Yes. All right. Tell us about a place or two in Vancouver that you like to go to to dine when you're a guest. A couple of favorites are going to include Masayoshi mm-hmm. uh, on Fraser Street. Amazing omakase menu. Uh, Chef Masa is one of the, the sweetest, kindest humans. We've done collaboration dinners with him in the past, and I look forward to doing more. He just does beautiful work on every level. He's so creative and so forward-thinking with his approach to how he does his food, and just so technically skilled. Recently, we went to a place called STEM, a Japanese eatery in Burnaby, formerly the chef who was formerly at Zest, which was a highly acclaimed restaurant on the west side. We had an outstanding dinner there as well, more of sort of share plate style, a little bit more casual, but beautiful, beautiful food using the most up-to-the-minute locally sourced products available. Yeah, it was incredible. Chinara, Chef Lucas makes some of the best pastas, hands down, that I have had in the city. So we love getting as much pasta at Chinara as we can (laughs) on any given day. And last question, it's a bit of a long rambling one, but I'm curious because you have, of course, a chef's perspective, you have a restaurant owner's perspective because you've done both uh, for years. But for this question, what I'm hoping you can do is take all of the knowledge that you have and apply it to an experience as a restaurant guest. And is there anything that you would advise people do or not do or an approach they take? How can guests get the most out of a restaurant experience? You know, that's tricky because I I feel like I was just asked a question like this not too long ago. And one of the angles from the person mentioning it was that they very much, as an experienced diner, do not like when they find themselves in a restaurant where someone is telling them what to do or talking down to them, being condescending. 
uh, especially as a woman, which I can completely understand. So it's that fine balance between being a good customer and being in a good restaurant that has good service staff. So you can be a good diner yet find yourself in a restaurant where the service staff are not, you know, being good to you. And you can also be a not a great diner and find yourself in a restaurant where the service staff is doing everything they can to give you a good experience yet you're not going to participate. So it's a balance. <laughs> and, and when you do find the the right place where they're giving you great service, mm -hmm. I guess the advice is like the just advice, engage. <laughs> absolutely. Engage, you know, be curious. That's generally the sign for uh, service staff that you care and that you want to experience what they have to offer because there are so many restaurants that really are doing cool things and they're passionate about what they're doing. And if you give them the opportunity to share that with you and sort of take you on a journey, you can have the most amazing experience. And that happens here for us all the time, especially with such a unique wine list. When customers are willing to be open to admitting that they, you know, they don't really know, they don't understand it, they've not tried these wines before, the servers are so excited to share these incredible products with them and to take them on that journey. And everyone wins when you do that. Those are all my questions. Okay. Thank you, Chef. That was fantastic. You're welcome. Thank you. And is it any wonder I have such admiration for Andrea Carlson? I really hope you could hear in that interview the depth and seriousness of Chef Carlson's commitment to food security and to doing things right. Chef is such a passionate supporter of sustainable agriculture, of meaningful, thoughtful production and consumption. And hand in hand with that commitment is Andrea's incredible talent for making delicious things. Oh, and Chef mentioned a piece of equipment called the VitaPrep. VitaPrep is the commercial version of the blender called the Vitamix. I bought a Vitamix almost a decade ago on Chef's recommendation. It's not inexpensive, but it is a great blender. I use it all the time. And now to the law part of the show. My friend Mark Tweedy and I had a great talk about food now, food then, and the changes in between. One thing I found really interesting is that even though Mark talks about the scene decades ago, the chefs who were known at the time, how they all knew and worked with each other, how they came out of hotel culinary programs, there's also a direct link, chef to chef to chef, from those days gone by to the present day, and even to Chef Carlson at Burdock & Co. Small world. Here's my talk with Mark. Mark, thanks for joining me, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your views on Vancouver and the food trends. Good, thanks for being here. So let's start with just that. You've been working in downtown Vancouver for quite a few years, both in private practice on the litigation side, now as I say, uh, running your own shop and doing mediation. So I'm guessing you've had a lot of lunches over the years. Give me some background on your early days in the city and what the food scene looked like. I started practicing so long ago, I don't care to admit it, but put it this way, my very first office as a lawyer was at 321 Water which was and still is for that matter above El Porto and El Porto was my introduction to the business lunch it was very very it was too easy to get to El Porto we simply rode an elevator from our offices into the restaurant that's fantastic now I've heard of the early days and this was at a firm that we both practiced at at various times and I've heard El Porto referred to as the cafeteria back in the day. That's that's funny. I hadn't that's a, that's absolutely true. I hadn't thought of that in quite some time, but it, it was. It was treated as a staff uh, cafeteria and Umberto owned it in those days. It was a bit of a lively place. It had a, a very solid lunch uh, clientele 
and frequently we'd be sitting down there, there'd be two, three, four of us, and, and uh, people would come down with letters to sign, or it was the days before email and cell phones, so you'd, someone would say there's someone on the phone for you, so you'd ride in the elevator back up and so on. And uh, It was great fun. Those days are long gone, of course. Now, you mentioned Umberto, and I can, um, well, I know you're referring to Umberto Mengi, one of the real celebrity chefs in Vancouver. Talk to the listeners, if you would, a bit about who the influencers in the Vancouver culinary scene were back in the day when you were starting out. I tapped in to that whole early day crowd, and they they all at one point in time came out of various hotels. All the big food guys all came out of hotels. And if they didn't come out of a hotel, they had all worked at the cannery at one stage. So you had Umberto Menge, you had Bud Kanke at, at the cannery who had Fortes, and I can't remember what else he had. He had, uh, he had Highs and Antonio Corsi who owned Quattro on 4th. He was around in the early days. But all these guys knew each other. So if you, if you met one of them, you sort of got to know all of them. And they all came from the same kind of background. But it was really limited. There wasn't a zillion places to eat. As there are today. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mentioned Umberto and this collection of chefs operating in the same space or knowing each other because I was speaking with Andrea Carlson at Burdock & Co. And of course, prior to opening Burdock, she was the executive chef at Bishop's. And if I have my facts right, John Bishop was the chef at Il Giardino before opening his own place. I think, I think that's absolutely right. A lot of people came out of the kitchen at Il Giardino as well. Any, any number of them. Uh, Kenny Bogus was, uh, he did it by marrying into the Umberto family. <laughs> uh, but I think he worked, at, I think he was from the kitchen at Il Giardino too at one stage. And what are your recollections, Mark, about the styles of food? You said there weren't, you know, certainly as many restaurants as we have now. What were the differences, what were the big differences that stand out to you from the cuisine in Vancouver, say, in the 80s to the cuisine that uh, that we have available to us now? Food's lighter now, generally speaking, so you're not getting the saucings and the heavy saucings and, and uh, so on. I think that's one big difference. I think the other... Another one that, that jumps to mind is way, way more emphasis on everything fresh, and I don't think that was as common. I mean, restaurants weren't serving dated food, don't get me wrong, but there wasn't this emphasis on everything being fresh. And I think, too, fare was far more standard. Asabuco was a, an exotic dish in right, 1982. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what have you observed as trends over time? I think there seems to be now, there's a lot more... There's a place that just opened around the corner from me, uh, for example, the Pepe which is the same fellow that owns uh, Luigi's, uh, Nick. I don't think you would have seen a De Pepe 35 years ago, a place with a dozen seats that serves six pasta dishes and two pizzas or three pizzas. I think everything was done on a much bigger scale 30 years ago. Now you're seeing much smaller, you're seeing much smaller places, much more specialized food, much more limited menus in smaller spaces. So there's been a downscaling. I wonder if that goes hand in hand with what we're seeing in other areas with increasing access to information and specialization. And I think about, you know, music, right? Back in the day, we all had to listen to the radio. Now you can pick whatever you're interested in and go to it. So there's, it seems to me there's really more a market for almost anything if it's done well. I think that's right. I mean, you and I had lunch last year, for example, at Peckinpah, which is one of my 
favorite local spots for a quick bite or a quick takeout dinner. I don't think you would have seen a Peckinpah 30 years ago with that focused a menu with like eight things on the menu. But good comparison. That's a, that's a very good comparison. So let's move up to present day Vancouver. And I know you continue to, to access the dining scene here and enjoy it, but you've got a personal connection to the culinary industry as well that <laughs> I'd like to ask you about. And that's one of your children. You have a son who's a chef in Kelowna. Yes, right? my son Adam is uh, 32 this year. And he he's the head chef of the at Earl's in Kelowna, and he actually started working for Earl's when he was 14. Wow. Uh, he uh, apparently, is, I don't know whether he wins some kind of prize, but uh, everybody in Earl's knows Adam because of the period of time he's worked for them. But he started as a dishwasher, quickly advanced. I think he, his first job was uh, making salads on the line, and he was a line cook and so on. And he's actually opened a couple of stores for them in Miami and Seattle, and is now settled in up in Kelowna. That's fantastic, and it sounds like his progression, young as he is and modern as his era is, is very much in the traditional school, where you start young and you apprentice and you work your way through the positions. Yeah, absolutely, and, and what's kind of cool about it as well is that his, he doesn't cook as much as he uh, used to, uh, but he has an awful lot of training, and he trains a lot of people that used to be like him, because right. <laughs> Earl's, is a, Earl's actually has a fabulous training program. Well, let's move on, Mark, to just a couple of things that I'm going to ask you to share with the listeners. You live in the downtown. You live very much in urban Vancouver now, in the Gastown area. You know the restaurant scene here. Can you pick out some favorites here or really anywhere in the metro area that you would recommend to people? I'm really a creature of habit. You know, I talked about Peckinpah's. I lived in the building next door to Peckinpah for a couple years, and I ate there. It it was at least once a week. And I also don't, uh, although I have a car, I don't drive much. So we, uh, my girlfriend and I tend to eat close to home. And constants for us have been, in in speaking particularly of Gastown, have been jewels which has been there for, I guess, six or seven or eight years now. And and it's just unbeatable in terms of reasonably priced, high-quality bistro-type atmosphere. We also eat frequently at the Flying Pig, but find it a bit noisy from time to time. But the food's consistent. And, you know, comparing it with Earl's, it's sort of Earl's kind of pricing. A little faster is the aforesaid Peckinpah. I will likely do takeout from Takafino tonight. Takafino's actually is another example of something that I don't know that would have thrived 30 years ago. Real specialized A really menu. specialized, again, relatively small menu. I like eating there. The food always tastes very fresh to me and it's always very flavorful. I never eat enough though. I never order enough. So the other places we like, I really like Cuchillo and I'm not much of a tapas eater, which is sort of, so it gets high marks from me for that. I'm a big fan of Luigi's, but it's almost impossible to get in. Right. Yeah, you got to show up sort of before the opening go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And final question that I've got, Mark, is do you have any tips or recommendations for people on how they can improve their own restaurant experience? And I appreciate that's a vague and maybe a really wide open question. I personally have some concerns with how people interact with servers, with restaurants, how much attention they're actually paying. Any thoughts on that? Well, I had a, it's, a, it's, it's funny you ask. I had a, a friend, a really good friend, recently asked me for, he said, what's that place uh, you and Barb always go to the French place? I said, oh, Jules. Oh, yeah, I, we've never been there. I'm going to try it. So he and his wife went off for dinner, and I said, how was it? Well, you know, they had very few vegetarian options. I kind of laughed, and I said, they don't. Right. <laughs> that's what they don't do. That's what they don't, that's what they don't do. So it was, a, it was, to me, if that's what you're looking for, maybe you should scout ahead. 
go for what they're doing. I also, I think because I was in my past life, I was a keg waiter while I was going through uh, university. I was too. Where are you really? After university in Thunder Bay, yeah. There you go. I was I was at the old keg thorough underground there. And so I have a soft spot for servers. And, and what I see is that I don't think people in Vancouver treat servers as respectfully as they might. They might be servers, but they're not servants. And it's not that you want them to be keg waiter friendly or anything like that, but just decency. And I often see that that's not the case. Well, fantastic, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet up with me today and and share your thoughts. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And there it was, episode number one. That's Cheftimony. Pretty simple, talking to people who love food. In today's show, both Mark Tweedy and Andrea Carlson commented on the value of engaging with servers. And I suppose in fairness, I did ask them what we might call a leading question on that topic. But I think it's an important point because I've seen so many people have just standard run-of-the-mill restaurant experiences because they're not really interacting with the restaurant staff. And look, I get it. Sometimes you're simply hungry, you're not looking for conversation, and you just want to eat. So I'm not talking about those times, but when you're in a restaurant that does something special, a restaurant that has staff who know their stuff, then I really think you can improve your dinner or breakfast or brunch or whichever meal by diving into the experience. In good restaurants, the employees are really proud to be there and good staff are hard to come by. So great servers have chosen to be at that restaurant for a reason. So in those cases, I think it really is worthwhile to ask them questions, to seek their advice on the menu and ask why they've chosen to work at that particular restaurant. It's all up to you, of course. It's your money and your night out. But I'm sharing this simply because I've seen people miss out when they could be getting a lot more out of a restaurant visit. If you haven't done it, I say give it a try. And I really hope it works to make your night out a better one. Looking ahead now, Chef Timoni is just getting started. So if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, or a chef or a lawyer you'd like to hear from please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. And the best way to reach me is by email. I'm graham at cheftimony.com. You'll always be able to catch up on anything you've missed on the show. Blog posts and past episodes are available on the website. That's cheftimony.com. And there you'll also find notes and links to the restaurants that guests mention on the show. And please follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. It's at cheftimony. That's all for episode number one. I'm Graham McLennan, and thank you very much for spending some time with me here today. It means a lot, and I'd love to see you back here next time on Chef Timoney.